0: Turn with me in your copy of God's Word today to the Gospel of Matthew. This will be our last sermon in the book of Matthew until the new year. In Matthew chapter 10 and the last few verses of the chapter we will be looking this morning at verses 34 to, to 42. Well, as you can see here gathered this morning, our students had Disciple now. Weekend. Many here in the center and scattered throughout the room have the shirts on indicating they were a part of the weekend. And hopefully, you've noticed on the shirts, the shirt has the theme Christ Overall. And the question is, why is Christ Overall? The students studied Colossians this weekend, and you, you studied and heard messages speaking of Christ Overall. The reason Christ is Overall is, first of all, who He is, the preeminent one who is highly exalted, rules over all, the firstborn of all creation. But not only is he over all for who he is, he is also over all, above all, exalted over all because of what he's done. You looked at that, his work of redemption and dying on the cross, canceling our debt by nailing them to the cross, making us alive in Christ, right? So he's overall for who he is. He's overall because of what he's done. And because of this, because he is overall, it has great bearing on us eternally. That we can stand and we can sing almost home. That we can stand and we can sing that we are bound for the promised land. That we can sing with great joy, great anticipation, that Christ is our hope in life and death, and no matter what comes, we look forward with anticipation for our Lord because of who he is. He reigns over all, and this has great significance for us and for our eternity. As a, as a child, I remember, I, I think I was in second grade, and we had an artist, a local artist that would come to our school and And she came, and and it was kind of this Bob Ross-esque art thing. You know, you guys know Bob Ross, right? Uh, Most people who don't even do art kind of know who Bob Ross is, if nothing else, for the hair. But Bob Ross, she came in, and she would come and do her thing, and she sat down, bless her heart, with a bunch of second graders with canvases and paint. She was a brave, brave lady, and she would help us paint, and I brought those paintings home with such pride and, and just I was so excited about them. They, they actually turned out decent. My, my parents, of course, they're my parents. They would hang anything up on the wall, right? But they still had two of these hanging on the wall. Uh, one of them, I'm like, that's pretty good. The other one, I'm thinking they really should take that down. But they're, they're pretty decent paintings. Now, I don't call myself an artist. I definitely wouldn't say I'm great at art. And I don't really remember much of anything she taught, to be honest with you. But I do remember somewhat of the process of painting those paintings. The first thing we did is we got the paints out and she gave us all the colors on the palette and, and we got them out on our palettes and we got our brushes out and we painted the background. We had to paint the background and get it the right, the right color and, and the right kind of foundation laid and then everything else was painted on that. And you kind of, in some ways, you kind of worked from the background out and what looked in the beginning, just this basic color on the background came into beautiful shape of really a, a beautiful painting that she walked us through. Well, we come to the end of Matthew 10 this morning, and we need to ask a question, really for all of chapter 10 perhaps, but certainly for this passage, what is the necessary background of our passage today? What is it that, that should be the backdrop for what we read today? What what should be the backdrop of the reality that Christ indeed is above all that we'll look at today? I, I would contend that Matthew seven, thirteen to fourteen is our necessary background and backdrop for today's text. Do you remember this? Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is, what? Hard. Right? The way is narrow, or the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. See, the reason this is the necessary backdrop is because we need to know and understand as followers of Jesus Christ that the narrow way, the narrow gate is hard, but it leads to life. And we don't come in and we don't come about to following Christ thinking that that life is going to be easy, that it's just this bed of roses, that it's my best life now. No, our best life is to come. Our best life awaits in the promised land in which we sing that we are almost home with great anticipation because we know that being in the presence of the King of Kings is the best life. And the way along the path to that life is hard. It is Difficult. And so I hope that this morning you don't come and you don't gather as a Christian and go, Well, I signed up to be a Christian. I committed my life to Christ because I thought it was going to be easy and I wanted an easy life. No, that's not the case. Scripture warns us time and time again. Our Lord warns us time and time again that the way is difficult. That is the backdrop for what we read this morning. Let's begin reading in Matthew 10, verses 34. We'll read through 42 this morning. Our Lord said this, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake, will find it. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly. I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Jesus begins this passage by correcting some faulty thinking that we are guilty of having. He says, do not think that I've come to bring peace on the earth. Don't don't think for one moment, he says. Why does he say this? He says this because... He understands that that is something that, that his followers anticipating the Messiah were prone to think. But he's correcting our thinking. He understands that the coming of the Messiah, his coming, looked a little different than what many expected it would look like. This isn't the only time that Jesus does this. It isn't the only time that he, he corrects our thinking, that we better understand who he is and what he's done, what he's doing and living and dying for us. We read in Matthew 5:17 we were in the lord's uh, the Sermon on the Mount. What do you say about the law? Do you remember? same thing. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So Jesus says, listen i, I didn't come to just Cast the law aside. I came so that you might have a true understanding of the heart of the law, the meaning of the law, the purpose of the law. I came to fulfill it, to bring it to its fruition. So don't think that I've come to abolish it. it later, in Matthew nine thirteen we study this passage where he said, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came, what? I came not to call the righteous but the sinners. Jesus is saying, listen, I didn't come just to hobnob with all the religious gurus. I didn't come just to sit with the righteous and to enjoy my time with the holy huddle and and just for them, the do-gooders, the religious elite. I came for sinners. Christ came for sinners like you and me. Of course, what we see in the New Testament is Jesus' dialogues with the Pharisees. We see and we learn what? there is none who are righteous. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Paul teaches us, and we see it as Jesus stands toe-to-toe with the religious elite, calling them to repentance for their vain religion. Later in Matthew twenty 28, we'll see Jesus correct our thinking again, where he says the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Lord did not come to sit up in a palace and and to have servants and subjects come and wait on his every need. But he came to serve those whom he would die for. The ultimate serving of our Lord. See, he's correcting our thinking. We have to be careful to kind of check our expectations at the door. Some of you come in here today and you have certain expectations of who Jesus is and what Jesus does, what it looks like to be a Christian, what it doesn't look like to be a Christian. And sometimes those expectations are just completely bogus. They're, they're terrible. They're way off base. We have to allow the Lord to inform us and to guide what we understand of who he is and what he has done and what he calls us to. We look to his word to inform our expectations. So 1034 corrects the idea that the Messiah would come in and usher world peace. Now, some of you may be thinking and may have in your mind, you read this passage, you come across this verse, and you go, Wait a minute this doesn't make sense. Like we hear all of these prophetic words about the Messiah coming to bring peace. And isn't peace a primary aspect of Christianity? So how can he say what he says here? How can he say, do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth? How can he say that? Doesn't Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 call Jesus the Prince of Peace, right? We're coming up on the season of Advent. And we will sing of this one, we will declare this one who is said to be the prince of peace, the one who is said of the the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. What gives? Doesn't doesn't Zechariah 9.10 say that the appointed king, the Messiah, would speak peace to the nations? What gives with that? What gives with with the fact that Jesus comes into Jerusalem? He he rides in not on a conquering stallion. What does he ride into Jerusalem on? A donkey. A symbol, a demonstration of a humble king coming in peace, not a warring victor. What about what the angels say to the shepherds in Luke 2.14? And we'll sing of this too, right? In just a few weeks, we'll be singing this. What did they say? Glory to God in the highest on earth, peace. On earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Or what about more recently? Just in the Sermon on the Mount, what did Jesus say? Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called the sons of God. What gives? What gives? How does this make sense? What does Jesus mean when he says, don't think that I have come to bring peace to the earth? I have not come to bring peace but a sword. What gives is this, is that Jesus came to bring peace with God and the peace of God. Okay, Jesus came to bring peace with God and the peace of God. So Romans 5, 1, the peace with God says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. right. He came to bring peace with God, to reconcile us, to destroy the brokenness and the enmity that existed between us and the Father, to remove it, to break down the walls, the barrier that we might be children of God. But he also brings the peace of God so that we read that verse in Philippians 4-7, one that I'm sure many of you have have leaned upon and found great strength on in difficult days. In Philippians 4-7, it says the peace of God, right? The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So he grants us the peace of God that we walk through the fiery trials. We walk through the difficulties of life. We walk through the sufferings of life with the peace of God. You encounter one who goes through a great trial. And how many times have you had this conversation when you come and you, you know, for us as pastors, sometimes we walk into a a hospital room and, and you know the situation is difficult. You know, the situation is hard. You know, there's great grief and uncertainty and many questions And the question is, how are you doing right now? And so many times as a pastor, the reply is, we're hanging in there. God's giving us peace. We don't know what tomorrow holds. We don't know what the outcome will be. But we have the peace of God. He has come to bring peace with God. He's come to bring the peace of God. However, however, this is what Jesus is saying. He does not bring peace with the world or those who are opposed to him, okay? He brings the peace with God, peace of God, but he does not bring peace with the world. So elsewhere, John 16, 33, Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. So in him we would have peace, but in the world you will have tribulation, he says, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So he says, I've said these things so that in me you would have peace, but you are going to have tribulation in the world. There will be difficulty. There will be opposition. When he prays for us in John 17, verse 14, he says, he he prays this all. He says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. The world's hated them. That is not peaceful. The world has hated them. Why? Because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. This is why Spurgeon noted in this passage... bug landed on my head there. <laughs> I hope it wasn't Spurgeon. <laughs> Spurgeon noted in this passage... That's bad theology if it was, not it? <laughs> in the act of producing the peace of heaven, he arouses the rage of hell. In producing and bringing the peace with God and the peace of God, Spurgeon says that in that moment, in that act... Christ arouses the utter rage and attack and hatred of hell. That the world would stand opposed to Christ. And so he says, listen, you need to know that I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. And sword does not mean that he came to incite a violent religion, that we would come and we would execute people for the sake of them turning to Christianity. It is not an excuse that we would come and wage war to force people to turn to Christ. That is not it. That would be a wrong reading of the text and the whole of the New Testament. We see, though, also that Peter drew his sword, right? Peter drew his sword in that moment when he's betrayed, and he slices off the ear, right? And what does Jesus say? Put away your sword. Put away your sword we are instructed in second corinthians 13:11, first peter 3:11, hebrews 12:14, we could go on and on that christians are to strive to be peace at peace with others. We do so knowing that there will be many who refuse to be at peace with us and who in turn come at us and oppose us and persecute us they refuse to accept peace with us. So what Jesus means when he says that I have not come to bring peace, but I have come to bring a sword, he means that he is a line of division. He separates believers from unbelievers, those who are with God from those who are opposed to God. You might say he comes to determine the sides. He draws a line that you are either with him or you are not. There is no in-between, students. You need to know that now at a young age. There is no indifference or in-between where you can just go about life okay with Jesus. You can just go about life saying, I'm fine with that. It was a good weekend. It was fun. Had some good food. Now I just go about my life. No, Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace, but I came to bring a sword. I came to draw a line. You are either with me or you are against me. So, unbeliever, what you need to know is that you may have peace in the world, right? If you're an unbeliever, you have peace in the world. But you need to understand that you do not have, you will not have, and you cannot have peace with God outside of faith in Jesus Christ. You can't. You will forever stand at enmity with God Almighty. You will always be a child of wrath, a child of wrath, an object of wrath. Romans 2, 5 describes you as storing up God's wrath, daily storing it up, daily welcoming it in. If you've got a bucket, you just keep heaping it in, wrath and wrath upon you. You cannot, you will not, you do not have peace with God outside the blood of Christ. You need to know that. You need to know the truth of what I read during our Lord's Supper, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Listen, the good news for those of you who are in here and you're an unbeliever, the good news is this, is that through faith in Jesus Christ, You are reconciled to God, and you have peace with God. So the call, if you're an unbeliever, is to turn from your sin, to repent of your sin, and to trust Jesus Christ in faith today. To go from one who would be at enmity with God to one who is the friend of God. Would you trust Christ today, unbeliever? Now, believers, what this means for us is that we cannot for one second think that we stepped across this line to follow Jesus and that when we did, we would experience this peaceful, easy going life in relation to those who don't follow Christ? Does everybody oppose you? Is everybody coming after you as a Christian? Not necessarily. But you and I need to expect that there will be opposition that people will oppose us for our faith. They will oppose us for Christ. That's what Jesus warned us of in, in Matthew 10, starting in verse 16, all the, all the way to 25, he's warning us there will be opposition. There will be persecution. It was the way he closed out the, the, the Beatitudes in Matthew five eleven. He says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you on my account. It's, it's what Peter talks about in, in 1 Peter 4, starting in verse 12. I, I love how he says this. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or evildoer or a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Peter says, don't be shocked. Don't be surprised when difficulty comes. Don't be surprised or shocked or act like it's some strange thing when somebody opposes you. Wake up. Wake up. We've been warned that that would be the case. So it is at this point that kind of the overarching theme of this passage, I think, takes shape. That following Jesus is costly. Following Jesus is costly. Students, you need to know that now, again, at a young age. Following Jesus is costly. It's one thing to wear that shirt. It's a pretty cool shirt, I think. I like it. It's going to be another thing if you truly live that way. If you truly live that way, your life will look different. And it will bring opposition. Because the way you carry yourself on campus will be different. The way you compete will be different. The way you plan your future will be different. Christ overall. Christ overall. If Christ is overall, it is going to be costly. And Jesus explains this in the rest of the passage in two ways. Two ways that he explains this. In verse 35 to 37, the first way is this, is that Christ is above all other relationships. Christ is above all other relationships. He is to be our priority relationship. He is to be before all others. When we read there right away in verse 35, when we see four, this is indicating Jesus is elaborating on what he just said in verse 34. He said, listen, I I didn't come to bring peace. I, I came and bring a sword. There's a dividing line here. You need to know that it's here. And I'm going to explain this for you. And the way I'm going to explain it to you is to explain that not only are you going to be opposed by the world, by those out there, but you need to look around and there will be those who are closest to you that you love the most dear who will oppose you. Your own family might oppose you. Listen, this this passage, these verses bear a particular weight, a weight that Honestly, we don't like to talk about, honestly, it's a passage that if you're just being really transparent, I think you might say this, I would say this to you, if I'm just being really transparent with you, I would rather kind of skim over these passages. I I would, I just, I hate to even imagine that my own family would stand opposed to Christ and to me. But the weight, the reality is this that Jesus will perhaps bring division among some families. There will be some families that stand in opposition to each other because of the gospel. Some of you sit in here today, and you know this quite well experientially. You sit perhaps as a young person, even as an adult, with a parent who opposes everything about Christ who perhaps even ridicules you or asks you why you would waste your time doing what you're doing. Why would you go and spend the weekend doing this? It's just a bunch of religious mumbo-jumbo. Why would you waste your life doing that? Some of you sit here today and you just weep and grieve day after day after day that your child has spurned all of your teaching, has rejected Christ, rejected the gospel, and stands opposed to you and everything that you hold fast in the world. And it breaks your heart. This passage, this passage is telling us and reminding us that in the midst of that, we hold fast to Christ because he is over all other relationships. He does not sit under any relationship, even the relationship of our nearest and dearest family members. We are to hold fast to him. He is over all, even our families. Now, maybe you say this is too much. This is too much. I don't know that I could serve Jesus if it means him being above my family. How could he say this? Well, A, he's God. And B, in coming as a man, he experienced this. Do you, you recall Matthew 13, 53 to 57? It says he was seeking to do ministry in Nazareth. And what happens? His very family and friends rejected him. It says, and they took offense at him. Took offense at him. But Jesus said, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. We read in John 7, through or seven verse 5, it says that even his brothers did not believe him. His own brothers look at him and go, it's crazy. In Mark 3, 20 to 21, says, then he went home and the crowd gathered again so they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying what? Let's seize him to protect him. Let's seize him and get him in here so he can have a better platform and get him up on the roof so he can really talk and proclaim. Why did they seize him? They seized him because they were saying he is out of his mind. He's crazy. And Jesus' own family that he grew up with as a man said he's crazy, he's out of his mind, we don't believe him, I don't even want to hear him, we're going to reject him and spurn him. You see, these, these words that Jesus speaks, he knows the weight of them. In his humanity, he experienced it, he walked through it. He understands it. And these words remind us that we have to set aside every idol, and that includes one that we don't like to call an idol, but can be an idol, the family. Christ is above all. That means that we must not set our hope, our gauge of success Our value as parents in our child following Jesus Christ. Our value is in Christ. Our hope is in him. Our gauge of success, if you want to call it that, is are we living for his glory? Are we walking in obedience to him? Do we work and strive for our children to trust the Lord? Absolutely. I'm going to do everything I can that my four kids would grow a deep love and faith and trust in Christ, but I can't guarantee it. I can't guarantee it. There's no button that I walk home and push. There's no button in the back of my Bible that I flip over and push, and out pops a pretty little Christian kid. If there were, I would push it. There may indeed be opposition in our families. Now, we need to take note here that Jesus is not, Why he says this, he is not saying that you should not love your family. He, he's not saying you, you should not love your family, you should just hate your family. Uh, I came to destroy the family unit. No, that's not what he's saying. Jesus is not anti-family. The, the crux of the matter, the, the key thing is in verse 37. In verse 37, he says, there's a phrase in there, he says twice. that really is the, the, the line and the sand here for what's going on. Do you see what he says? He, he repeats it twice in verse 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. What is the issue? Do we love family what? More than Christ. You see, students, you're a walking testimony today just by the sake of your shirt, right? Christ overall includes my family, right? If I love my wife more than Christ, my priorities are out of whack. If I love my kids more than Christ, my priorities are out of whack. I must love Christ. Christ more than them. But when I love Christ more than them, what happens? Then I love them relentlessly. I serve them. I lead them. I care for them. I do what is best for them. I invest in them. I speak the truth to them. I lead them to trust the gospel. Why? Because Christ is over all. Christ is over every relationship. So the question then that we have to ask at this point is, who is our primary relationship? who are we most living for? Who do you truly live for? Do you live for others? Are you living primarily everything in your life? Is it all about your kids? Is it all about your your boyfriend or your girlfriend that everything you do hinges around that person? Is it all about your spouse? Is it all about your teammates or whoever it is you hope to impress, maybe at work or in the community, at church. Who's your primary relationship? Or is it Jesus, the one who created you, the one who saves you, the one who died for you? Who's your primary relationship? Christ is above all relationships, okay? Now, the second way he explains this, that that following him is costly. One is that it means he is above all relationships, which could bring great trial and difficulty. The second way is that he explains that Christ, he is above all other commitments. He's above all other commitments in verse 38 and 39. And the, the reason we would understand this and say this is that that which we are most committed to is what we're most willing to make sacrifices for. Right? The thing, whatever it is in your life, just... Think about your life. What are you most willing to make sacrifices for? That is where your greatest commitment lies. So for some sitting in here today, this may be a job. For others, it could be a sport. For some, it could be your family. For some, it could be a hobby. That you're so committed to that thing that you're willing to sacrifice everything for that that you're willing to sacrifice and, and cut away anything in life. You'll rearrange everything at the drop of a hat. Just like that, you'll rearrange everything for that thing because you're committed to it. Now, is your commitment to job or family or sport, hobby, success, money, stuff, or is your commitment to Christ? Christ is above all other commitments. I mean, consider, just consider the great sacrifices that you make. Consider how great the sacrifices you make, perhaps, for athletic success, students. Consider. Consider the things that that maybe you're doing right now just to achieve some goal on a field or on a course or a court. Or consider the great sacrifices you're making to be able to, to play at this level musically or to achieve this scholarship, to be number one in your class. What sacrifices are you making for those things? Parents, adults, what sacrifices are you making for your job? Sacrificing time with your kids, sacrificing relationships at home, sacrificing time with the body, coming and being involved and doing missions, all for the sake of success in the job. Bigger paycheck, more retirement. Consider the sacrifices we make parents for our kids. We will literally move mountains to go see a 20 minute race, an hour long basketball game. What's the end of those sacrifices? Are those things all negative? No, they're not. I mean, for crying out loud, I really enjoy sports. I, I invest a lot of time and energy and even money into running. I love my family. I'm going to show up. I'm going to be there for my kids. But what I have to understand that the sacrifices I make for my family, the sacrifices I make even for my job as a pastor, the sacrifices I make for my kids, the sacrifices I make for running, all of those pay temporary dividends. They're all temporary, right? They all have temporary returns. Christ calls us to, be, to make our greatest sacrifice for him, that he would be our primary commitment. Why? Because it is not a temporary result, a temporary dividend on the line, but it is eternal in nature. It is eternal life that is on the line. Christ calls us to make him our primary commitment. And when we do, according to the text, when we make him our primary commitment, that we say Christ is above all other commitments, he's above all else that I do, he's above all else that I work for, he's above all else that I enjoy, then the text says it is going to be hard because it requires that we take up our cross and we follow him. Taking up our cross is to take up the way of sacrifice, of suffering, of difficulty, of trial, all for the sake of Christ. As Christians, we should expect sacrifice. J.C. Ryle wrote this. He said, Few things do so much harm in religion as exaggerated expectations. People look for a degree of worldly comfort in Christ's service, which they have no right to expect, and not finding what they look for are tempted to give up religion in disgust. Happy is he who thoroughly understands that though Christianity holds out a crown in the end, it brings also a cross along the way. Happy is he. Ryle said, happy is he who remembers. There is indeed a crown that awaits. We do sing with great anticipation. We are almost home. We're bound for the promised land. But that crown awaits. There is difficulty along the way. And we must be ready. We must be prepared for it. Take up your cross and follow Christ. He is above all their commitments. That all else would be pushed aside and take a back seat to Him. That He would inform everything else. That because Christ is above all, it influences how you study students. It influences how you do your schoolwork. It influences how you write that essay. It influences how and what type of a friend you are. It influences the way you compete. It influences the way you respect and honor your parents. It influences everything about your life. Every commitment you make, the investment you make in a hobby, the investment you make in a sport, everything is influenced by your commitment to Christ above that thing. Christ above all. Christ above all. Is it worth it? Is it worth it to take up your cross, to to step willingly into the difficulties of following Christ, to, to walk the narrow way that is hard and difficult, what kind of perspective do you have? I mean, obviously, we think these things that we've been talking about are worth it, right? I mean, just for a moment, right? Sports. I I consider that the sacrifice of training, of practicing, of running day in and day out, when it's cold, when it's hot, when it's raining, when it's snowing, when it's windy, that it's worth it when I step up to a line and I race. I think it's worth it. What about, what about your work? Think about the time that you sacrifice. Is it worth it when the raise is earned, when retirement comes, when you've achieved your goals at work? Well, obviously, most of you in here say, yeah, I think it's worth it. School, is school worth it? The, the studying, the, the homework, the loss of sleep pays off when that scholarship is earned. When you get that ACT score, the job is landed. Obviously, you think it's worth it. Music, the practice. The time where your fingers are just burning and calloused? The time that you set aside to sit in your room and just practice your instrument instead of being out with friends? Is it worth it? Well, apparently you count it worth it because you do it and you enjoy that moment where you perform effortlessly. You hit that note. You hit that chord. All these things we would say are worth it, but they're temporary. They will all pass. Every bit of it. I can be in a wreck today and break my legs and not run anymore. They're temporary. But Christ is eternal. What does he say? Verse 39, whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will find it. Listen, you may find life in sports and work and hobbies and music and family. But if that's the whole of your life, you need to understand when it comes to the end of life, you will lose your life. You can rack up all you want of that. But when it's done, when it's ended, it's over. There's going to be a day where there is no more running. There is no more working. There is no more of me gathering my family around for dinner. It's all gone. But there will not be a day in which Christ is gone. There will not be a day in which he ceases to exist. There will not be a day in which my relationship with him is over. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus said in John 12, 25 to 26, whoever loves his life loses it. So, if I everything that I have, I just grip onto this life, I hold onto this life, I acquire everything I want to about this life, he says that person is going to lose his life, be gone, it's going to be ripped from him. But whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. What are you living for? Are you living for that which is temporary, or are you living for that which is eternal? Are you storing up treasures and, and, and things, valuables that will rust, that moth will destroy are you? Are treasuring up things of heaven that cannot be destroyed? What are you doing? Are you losing your life for Christ because he is above all commitments? Listen, if so, you need to know and be encouraged today that it is of eternal value and significance. Eternal value and significance. Thomas Watson wrote a book called The Body of Divinity, and in it, he's just working through theology, and he starts with asking this question that many of you have heard. What is the chief end of man? What's man's ultimate purpose, So his ultimate goal, his ultimate end? And the answer to that, we would understand from the the catechism, is that, that we would glorify God and enjoy him forever, that man's chief end is to exalt him and glorify him. And writing about that, that, that we would value him, we would exalt him, we would glorify him as, as above all, Thompson, or Watson says this. He says, he had better lose his life than lose the end of his living. The great truth is asserted that the end of every man's living should be to glorify God, glorifying the Father who gave us life, God the Son who lost his life for us, and God the Holy Ghost who produces new life in us. Did you catch what Watson said? He said, it's better to lose your life than to lose the end of your living, to lose the purpose of your living, the purpose you're created for. It's better to set aside everything else, students, than it is to lose the very purpose for which God made you. And some of you are living for everything but that purpose. Everything but. You're filling it with everything but that and you think you're tricking people, you think you're putting on a good show, and nobody knows it, and it's not true. We see it. We see it. And we long for you to pursue Christ and to walk with him. We long for you to live what your shirt says, Christ over all, over all relationships, over all commitments, that you would pursue him and know eternal life. Lose your life for Christ. Cast it aside. Cast aside all those things that are fleeting and vain and and temporary. And pursue Christ. Pursue Christ. Find your life, eternal life in Christ. Now, verses 40 to 42, this won't take long. What he does is he ends with just two words of assurance. Two words of assurance. He's spent all of chapter 10, this mission dialogue, talking about the difficulty that may come upon us as believers, the opposition, the persecution that awaits. And he ends with two words of assurance. You know what you'll note here that there's two words all throughout this, these two verses, receive and reward. Receive is repeated eight times. Reward is repeated three times. Here's the assurance. He had said previously that you will be opposed. He said previously that there will be some who reject you, who persecute you, who drag you before rulers and authorities who will flog you. But here he says, you know what? First assurance, verse 40 to 41 there will be those who receive the message and receive eternal life. There will. Those who receive the message will receive eternal life. We we see that in verse 40. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. There will be some who hear the gospel and receive it, and they receive Christ, they receive God, they receive eternal life. So believer, this simply means that we persist in sharing the gospel knowing that while some will oppose it, some will snarl, there will be some who confess Christ and follow Christ and so we continue to press on unbeliever what this means is that you need to read this and read verse 40 to 41 where he says whoever receives me uh, receives you receives me and whoever receives me receives him who sent me if you trust Christ today you receive Christ you receive him you receive the great reward what is the great reward eternal life in Christ The invitation is open. The invitation is always open to receive Christ and be saved. The second word of assurance he says is in in verse 42, the last verse of the chapter, that God sees the work and service of his people. God sees the work and service of his people. Whoever, I'm sorry, Uh, And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. There is no task that is meaningless, Christian. Do not grow weary in doing good. Even the smallest act of ministry, the smallest thing of service, the smallest demonstration of love is seen by God. The smallest act of ministry is Seen by the greatest of kings. It doesn't go unnoticed. So we press on. We serve our God. We walk in faithfulness and obedience to Him. Because we are convinced and we know that Christ is above all, He is above every relationship, He is above every commitment. Following him will be costly. It will be difficult at times. But I stand here, students, this morning, as a testimony standing before you. And adults around you. You know what, adults? If you're a follower of Christ, would you just stand Students, I want you to look around. I want you to look around, students, at these adults. They are standing as testimonies that Christ is above all. He is, value, he is hard to follow at times, but he is worth it. He is worth it. You have adults standing in your midst who are in college. You have adults who have just gotten out of college and are starting families. You have adults who have teenagers. Some of your own parents are standing. You have senior adults here who are older than the time I've been a Christian, who have lived through some of the most difficult atrocities the world has ever seen, who have fought for your freedom who have defended everything and have walked through the deepest of valleys. And I want you to look around right now and I want you to see these adults that say Christ overall is real, Christ overall, because he is God and he is worth it. So no matter what difficulty comes your way, you do not forget those standing in your midst today. Do not forget. Let's pray. Father, we... Bow. We worship you, God. God, you are mighty. You're holy. You're awesome. You're loving. You're merciful. God, we worship you. Lord Jesus, we know. We know when you said you to take up your cross and follow, that, God, you knew what that meant in your own life as a man. God, when you spoke these words to the disciples, they had no idea what that meant, but they would know soon. And, God, we have the privilege now of looking back and seeing your great love for us and taking up the cross and dying on it for us in our place. And so, God, we know, we know You have told us that, God, the narrow way that following you will be difficult, it will be hard, it will be trying. There will be those who stand opposed. There will be things that we have to set aside and we leave behind, God. But, God, in following you, we find life. And so, God, we stand as those who have committed our lives to you. And we follow you, O Lord because you are worth it, because you are God, and you loved us first. So God, strengthen our faith, steady our weak knees. Help us to stand steadfast in the gospel, to persevere to the end. God, I pray for friends here today of all ages who are not followers of Jesus. God, I pray that you would work in their life. God, that you would bring conviction of sin, Grant them faith to believe, Lord. Please, please, we beg and we pray today. In the name of Christ, amen.